The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So one of the insights that we gain into what went wrong in Costa Rica that allowed this to happen is that there was an insufficient regulatory framework around cybersecurity reporting. And that kind of contributed to the long-lasting effects of the incident. And then there was poor communication between agencies because there wasn't necessarily a requirement that you would inform when you were dealing with, with an incident. And that allowed the remaining agencies to be unaware and kind of be caught by surprise by something that had already been going on. So, you know, that demonstrates the importance of preemptive measures. You need to have a strong, not only technical capacity, but appropriate legal framework around it. I'm Seraphine Danani, Legal Fellow at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 19th, 2023. This week, the UN General Assembly will meet in New York to discuss, among other things, international cooperation to improve global cybersecurity challenges. This meeting builds on national and international commitments and initiatives that have already been made this past year. One such initiative is Cybersecure Nations, banding together to provide aid to cyber risk nations. I sat down with Eugenia Lostry, Lawfare's own fellow in technology policy and the law, who recently wrote an article titled, What Will Mechanisms for Cybersecurity Aid Look Like? We discussed why cybersecurity aid is necessary, the growing initiatives that the US, EU, and international bodies are making in this area, and the many challenges that still await. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 19th, The Mechanisms for Cybersecurity Aid with A. Eugenia Lostry. So you just wrote an article titled, What Will Mechanisms for Cybersecurity Aid Look Like? And you set out a case for why cybersecure countries should band together to provide, quote, robust and regular cybersecurity assistance to third country victims of attacks. Let's start here. Explain to us what your case is. Of course. So uh, we know that cyber security threats are transnational, right? So criminal actors are not limited by and they do not respect borders. We know that this characteristic presents challenges to law enforcement cooperation, to track down and bring cyber criminals to justice, for example. But it's not only 
about where the actors are located and how to reach them. Cybersecurity incidents anywhere can have ripple effects that end up affecting people and businesses across the globe. So in my piece, I referenced the NotPetya attack, which is a very well-known attack. But as a brief recap, in 2017, a malicious data encryption tool was inserted into a legitimate piece of software that was used mostly by Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, institutions, right? However, this malware spread and ended up causing around $10 billion in damages across the world, including, you know, very notably, notably disrupting operations for the shipping company Maersk, right? And later assessments of the incident seem to indicate that NotPetya was deployed by the Russian government to disrupt operations in Ukraine. And yet, the indiscriminate spread of it caused significant damage to unrelated businesses. So, so what do we learn from this? We, we learned that you can't really think about cybersecurity as your own little problem that you can manage on your own. You, you really can't go at cybersecurity by yourself. So by helping ensure that systems and networks abroad are secure, you can increase your own protection. So give us a very broad level overview of what that looks like of securing the systems and networks collectively. So my piece focuses on how do you step in and how do you support a government that is going through a significant cybersecurity incident. And and that will really depend on a case-to-case basis on what that government is going through, what services are impacted, and what are their needs. And that is really going to depend on their own capacities, the trust that they have with uh, the the government that is coming in to help, and ultimately the, the resources that are available from both the supporting country and the victim country. Let's dive right in then. You talk about the United States and the European Union as being the principal cybersecurity aid providers. Before we get into what sort of aid they provide or some of their initiatives, explain to us why you're focusing on these two entities specifically. So I I focused my article on recent developments that are happening in the US and the EU because I think they represent uh, some of the most interesting shifts that are happening in the conversations around cybersecurity aid and cooperation, right? So the type of assistance has been happening for a while. This is not necessarily a, a new aspect of cooperation. I wrote a previous piece, for example, detailing how it went down in Costa Rica and Vanuatu. But the reality is that you know, as I've talked to people that were involved in incident response or are dealing with policy um, about it, that in many cases, if not all, the support is is very ad hoc, right? So there are no procedures, there are no processes that you can follow or that give guidance to how to request aid from another country or or how to provide it, right? So if we have established the transnational nature of cybersecurity incidents, this this becomes more important because not having processes in place makes the whole deal just not 
transparent and it adds another layer of complication to everyone involved. So again, going back to your question, we can look at the US and the US two places where things are starting to change, where we're starting to see the first steps towards a change in the conversation, towards establishing common transparent processes, which will <laughs> ideally, um, it will, it will depend on how these, these conversations actually go, but, but they will offer transparency and clarity to a, to a critical aspect of cybersecurity. What initiatives has the United States launched to provide the cyber aid? So the U.S., as I mentioned, has been providing cybersecurity aid in several ways. You can look at you know, the work that is being done by the U.S. Cyber Command. They have deployed hunt forward teams to support, for example, Albania, I think, is, was one of the latest uh, deployments. They have given funding that is going to countries to improve their cybersecurity posture. They sent teams to support government responses to a significant cybersecurity incident. But I want to focus my answer here on on two very connected elements. We have the National Cybersecurity Strategy and the Implementation Plan, which came out in March of this year. And then very connected remarks coming from Ambassador Nathaniel Fick, who is the ambassador at large for cyber policy in the US. So the National Cyber Strategy under under Objective 5.3 recognizes that providing support to allies and partners is a way to advance foreign policy and cybersecurity goals. And the strategy says that the U.S. government will need to establish policies for determining when it is in the national interest to provide that support, right? And it already highlights what are some of the challenges that need to be addressed. So we'll have the need to deploy the support efficiently and rapidly. And then there's also the challenge of financial and procedural barriers to provide this type of operational support. Then we have the implementation plan for the National Cyber Strategy. And this was released in July. And it directs the State Department to identify or develop a flexible and rapid foreign assistance mechanism to provide cyber incident response support. Now, this is expected to be completed um, in the first quarter of fiscal year 24. So, you know, by December, we'll have some more information about what that looks like. And connected to this point, Ambassador Fick has been discussing in several public statements um, on panels the way that his office is looking at this, some of the challenges that they're facing. Some of that has to do with who are the right recipients for any funds that the U.S. can provide, um, and how do you get that the, the funding to to the right people when there are certain barriers, for example, for law enforcement partners or Ministry of Defense partners, uh, who in many cases are the ones who are at the forefront of cybersecurity efforts in, in those third countries, right? And then how do you envision a process that is sufficiently flexible, sufficiently rapid and quick that it can 
be efficient, that it can actually make a difference for those who are experiencing significant incidents that are likely disrupting not just government services, but services that citizens need to go about their daily lives. You also note in your piece that there are policy priorities that allow governments that provide this assistance to advance their own interests. I know Ambassador Fick has suggested that as well. And I'm curious, what does that national interest look like? What are countries able to advance by providing this cybersecurity aid to vulnerable countries? So providing cybersecurity assistance is a way to advance your own policy priorities because you get to be involved. You can uh, further some of you know your own conceptions of what does a secure cyberspace should look like. What does responsibility look like? You can chime in on what should a strategy include. You can also look at cybersecurity aid as a way to implement. And, and I want to remove here my comments from like maybe state to state, but more about what is the vision that we're trying to advance, right? And so cybersecurity aid is a way to implement what is called the framework of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. This framework was developed in the context of UN negotiations through the UN group of governmental experts and the open-ended working group, also known as the GGE and the OEWG. Right. So part of this framework are 11 voluntary norms of responsible behavior. And one of them, norm H, says that states should respond to appropriate requests for assistance by another state whose critical infrastructure is subject to malicious ICT, that's Information and Communication Technology Acts. States should also respond to appropriate requests to mitigate malicious ICT activity that is aimed at the critical infrastructure of another state emanating from their territory, taking into account due regard for sovereignty. Right, so if you look at the first part of that norm, the need to respond to the appropriate requests for assistance, that is something that the international community has defined as responsible behavior. Stepping in, that is being responsible. Right. It's interesting to draw that connection between U.S. interests and then how there's also this global interest baked into that. A piece in your article that I found really striking is when you said that when you get help from the United States, for example, in, in this domain, you're likely to end up using American software. The same can be said about the EU. The same can be said about Israel. You you get help from Israel, you're going to use Israeli companies' products. And that is also another way to have influence over other countries to increase your presence globally. And I think that's important now because as the United States is trying to figure out its place and China is also going toe-to-toe with the U.S., this is one way where the U.S. Western countries can dominate and, in fact, also create goodwill. I'm curious, in your research and in and studying this this area so so rigorously, can you help us understand how China might be thinking about cybersecurity aid and whether they see this as also an opportunity to step in and help countries, but perhaps under the guise of 
having influence over these countries, something similar to what we might have seen in the Belt and Road Initiative? So I, I think that's a, a great question, Seraphine. We cannot escape the fact that there is a competition going on between the US and China, between different visions for what, in this case, cyberspace should look like. And of course, when you intervene, when you offer either cybersecurity aid, when you offer capacity building, when you offer funding for infrastructure projects, when you you know, make sure that your products are available in different countries, that does give you, you know, a, a lever. It gives you standing. It gives you a, a way to influence other countries. When it comes to uh, China leveraging cybersecurity aid in order to 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 gain influence over third countries, I I would say it's not really something that that comes to mind uh, naturally. I think what I've observed more is China uh, focusing on providing funding, on supporting digital uh, development efforts, and uh, and and that's where I've seen them kind of generate connections uh, more than with cybersecurity aid. That's interesting. Let's now turn to the EU because you focus quite a bit on the European Union as well. Uh, what about the EU's initiatives? What are they and how do they compare to the United States's? Sure. So I, I want to start by flagging that in the EU, cyber defense is primarily a national responsibility. But regardless, the European Commission earlier this year in April uh, proposed the EU Cyber Solidarity Act. And the reasoning behind this act, per the text, is that there are increasing cybersecurity risks and there is a potential for spillover effects from one state to the other. So it makes sense to kind of you know beef up the EU's own capacities to detect prepare for and respond to significant incidents. Right? And, and there are three parts to this act. We have first the establishment of a European cyber shield. This section focuses more on uh, situational awareness, on detection, kind of preemptive efforts. Then we have the cybersecurity emergency mechanism. And that is a way to help member states prepare for respond to and recover from cybersecurity incidents. And then there is a European cybersecurity incident review mechanism, which, as the name indicates, will review and assess those significant cyber incidents after the fact. And that is kind of a, a lessons learned effort. So for the purpose of what we're discussing today, and what I focused on in my article, I, I want to narrow down my my comments to the cybersecurity emergency mechanism right this would basically establish a eu level process for providing assistance to governments that are experiencing significant cybersecurity incidents and there are three actions that the proposed act offers so first we have preparedness actions we have response actions and then mutual assistance actions, right? Under the second point, response actions, 
um, the Cyber Solidarity Act would institute support as a uh, EU cybersecurity reserve. And that reserve would play a role in responding to and recovering from these significant and large-scale incidents that are affecting entities. And that reserve is made up from trusted providers. Now, who is a trusted provider? The Act lists three items that we need to consider. One, that they are able to deploy their services in all member states. Two, that they must protect member states' essential security interests. And three, that they have uh, to bring a EU added value. So basically, that's the way in which the EU is, at least at this first stage, which you know, it's only been introduced by the commission. It still needs to be reviewed. It's going to go through the famously lengthy EU legislative process. So who knows what this is going to look like in, you know, a few months. This is the way that they're envisioning how cybersecurity aid can be provided, at least at the EU level. Now, you can already see some of the differences in the way that we've talked about the U.S. cyber aid process, although it is hard at this time to establish actual differences because we don't have a tax to go through on the American side. For that, we'll probably have to wait at least until December. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> we sure will. And I know you will be on the podcast explaining to us exactly what's going on. So I want to turn here to a different article you wrote, if that's okay. Uh, it's the article you wrote with Georgia Wood, and you talk about Costa Rica specifically, and you talk about how the the international cooperation to help Costa Rica when it had its cyber incident in April 2022 was, I, I don't think I'm misstating this, when, when you seem to suggest that it was quite exceptional. So Walk us through what happened in Costa Rica. As, and I, and I want to draw this out because I think it's a good example of what international cooperation can do and what cybersecurity aid can look like. Of course. So what happened in Costa Rica was that basically in April of last year, their finance ministry was attacked by a ransomware which has been um, attributed to the Conti ransomware group, which is uh, believed to be based in Russia. And basically, since the beginning of April, 
Conti had gained access to Costa Rica systems. And while it initially targeted the finance ministry, it spiraled out and ended up affecting uh, a whole lot of their ministries, a whole lot of their services. And the effects really were were quite long lasting. You know, Georgia and I were, were very lucky to be able to talk to who was then the director for digital governance at the uh, relevant ministry in Costa Rica, who walked us through the timeline for the incident. And it was really from his perspective that we gained so much insight into how important the international efforts to support the Costa Rican government were. And also, I, I would suggest to anyone who's interested in this to listen to some of the remarks from the Costa Rican president who gave, uh, who was part of a panel discussion at CSIS recently, and and who underscored at the same the, the same point that that they wouldn't have been able to recover as quickly as they did, and that they were really reliant on the international help that they that they received. But back to the timeline, basically, because of pure communication between agencies, the ransomware attack spiraled. It affected, I believe it was 27 government bodies, nine of them severely. All of this was happening while at the same time, the Costa Ricans were getting ready for a transfer of power. So it was the first day of a new president's government when he had to declare an you know uh, an emergency because of the ransomware attack and and that really allowed him to to undertake some of the necessary response measures that's a heck of a way to start your yes. first day in office so <laughs> what does the government do to respond so the government is going through a very intense um kind of deliberation process internally so basically, there is a team that is comprised by representatives from different bodies. They all get together so that there is improved communication across the government. They start reaching out to uh, partners. We know that the US, Israel, Spain sent support in different ways. And we have a lot of internal coordination. And then we have the uh, national emergency in response to the incident, and that national emergency allows the government, the administration, to reach into special emergency funds that they needed to uh, continue to rebuild the systems. Do you know why these efforts were so coordinated in Costa Rica? You mentioned United States, Spain, Israel. I, these are at least like Spain, for example. It's not a country that is top of mind when it comes to issues like these. So how were they able to corral these countries to help Costa Rica? So the impression that I was left with after, you know, the, the interviews that we conducted was that a lot of the support was possible because, because there were pre-existing relationships. And the fact is, this was all very ad hoc going back to, you know, our, your, your previous question, this was basically good luck that there was one person in the right ministry. Good luck or 
preparedness, right? There were pre-existing relationships. They knew who to reach out to. And there was a interest on the other side in, in coming to their aid. So, so pre-existing relationships really were really critical here. I'm, I guess I'm just stuck on Spain. <laughs> like what interest do <laughs> they have in all of this? So, so we might not think of Spain as, you know, a big actor in cybersecurity, but Costa Rica did have a bilateral cooperation agreement with them. And uh, they had a memorandum of understanding for cooperation in cybersecurity. And because those those documents were in place, even though they did not outline a process through which aid was going to be offered or what that included or what were the conditions, there was a pre-existing relationship that that tackled the question. All of that sounds great. Now, let me ask you, what were the holes in both Costa Rica's response and the international community's response? And what do you think could have been done to fill some of the cyber aid gaps? So one of the insights that we gain into what went wrong in Costa Rica that allowed this to happen is that there was an insufficient regulatory framework around cybersecurity reporting. And that kind of contributed to the long-lasting effects of the incident. And then there was poor communication between agencies because there wasn't necessarily a requirement that you would inform when you were dealing with with an incident. And that allowed the remaining agencies to be unaware and kind of be caught by surprise by something that had already been going on. So, you know, that demonstrates the importance of preemptive measures, you need to have a strong, not only technical capacity, but appropriate legal framework around it that will allow all of the different stakeholders to be, you know, better communicated, to be better informed, and to um, just be able to to react faster, right? I, I would say from our conversations, that was what stood out as as know, the the biggest gap initially. So we've talked now about the United States' initiatives in the cybersecurity aid department. We've also talked about the European Union, and we've explored Costa Rica as a case study. Now, what's really interesting about this year is that it's not just the EU and the United States. You also, actually, I think, actually mentioned the UN at one point, but it's not just these bodies. We also have NATO involved. So help us understand what's what's NATO thinking about and what initiatives have they launched? So that's also another interesting initiative. Um, thank you for for raising that one. Um, in July at the NATO Allies Summit, um, there was something called the Cyber Defense Pledge that the Allies committed to. And as part of that, they launched a new virtual cyber incident support capability. Um, now, we already knew about this capability because it had been mentioned by the U.S. National Cyber Strategy that was released in, in March that we kind of already discussed in, in another question. And, and this is offered as an example of the policies that the administration needs to develop to determine 
precisely the national interest component of when to provide support to allies and partners, right? And basically, the virtual cyber incident support capability is designed to support national mitigation efforts in response to significant malicious cyber activities. Okay, let's let's stick to the international community and institutions that are working on this. So at this moment, I believe it's at this moment, at least this week, the UN General Assembly is meeting in New York. And on the docket is the proposed 2022 cyber-focused quote, UN program of action. So let's let's first have you explain to us what is this UN, UN program of action? Yes, of course. Um, and I, I think this is something that Politico broke this morning. We'll see, you know, if it's, if it's considered by the General Assembly. Um, so the program of action to, and the full title is Program of Action to Advance Responsible State Behavior in the Use of Information and Communications Technologies in the Context of International Security. And is that, is that the entire title? That is the entire title. Okay, well, now everyone knows. And what's the acronym for that, Eugenia? <laughs> um, people just call it the Cyber POA. Okay. There, you, yes. you heard it here from a Eugenia. I hope it's not the first time you heard it. <laughs> um, so this is a, a draft resolution introduced by a lot of countries. Um, advance, I think, I think France and Egypt are two of the main proponents of this, which looks at the future of the UN negotiations. Partially, there's been a group of UNGGEs there's now the second UNOEWG that is in place. And the question is what happens after? How should how should states continue to discuss what is responsibility, what is responsible behavior in cyberspace? And and the program of action would see kind of a more permanent forum for states to continue to engage in these conversations. And it is, as I understand it, although a lot of the details about what it would, you know, what its mandate would be are not, um, are not set, it would be focused on how to implement many of the norms, many of the existing agreements. And what should we expect coming out of the General Assembly meeting with respect to this POA? Well, so if the POA is... Basically, if the resolution is adopted, we can look forward to getting a better sense of, you know, when is it going to be established, how is it going to be established, and kind of what are some of the commitments that the international community will be will be tackling next. So I hear you say this, and it sounds nice to hear, but how much of this is document signing and shaking hands and patting ourselves on the back. What are the more tangible things that needs to come out of such an agreement to really make an effort to provide cybersecurity aid to vulnerable countries that goes beyond, again, just signing documents, rubber stamping some of these agreements, and then moving on? So that's an interesting question. Action that happens the international level needs also to be married to action that happens at a country level, 
right? So I think the value in, in this specific case that the international community can bring is, as it has to say, look, this is an important aspect of being responsible. This, you know, this is a transnational threat and we're all impacted and we should all make an effort to raise the floor for cybersecurity. And that means coming to assist to prevent countries from, you know, and not just countries in the abstract, but actual people from having their lives disrupted by significant attacks that prevent them from, you know, getting paid, that prevent them from accessing education, prevent them from accessing their health care. Those are real harms that can happen because of a cyber, you know, a cyber attack. And understanding the support as part of your response, you know, your your core responsibility, you know, I, I think that that's important. And of course, that will need to be followed up by actual implementation at the, you know, at the country level, at the regional level, and yeah, hopefully, maybe even at the at the multilateral level. I like where you took this answer because I realized that I had omitted something pretty important, which is that we think of the United States as the aid giver, but really in such a international cooperative environment as it relates to cyber aid, the United States also benefits in that it would also need cooperation globally when its systems are hacked. And it's become so frequent nowadays that it's not like the United States is somehow immune from these challenges. I mean, absolutely. Day in and day out, we we see the U.S. facing several cybersecurity incidents. It's and going back maybe to to I think our first question here about you know why this is important. The cooperation goes goes both ways. If you want to go after after threat actors, you will need other countries. We see you know international law enforcement efforts um, more and more nowadays. And if we want that to succeed, that means both. Uh, capacity building, and it means, you know, this kind of that support when when others need it. So then, help us explain, Eugenia, why would a country not want to be part of this collective cybersecurity aid ecosystem? Whether they are the country giving aid, or whether they're the country that perhaps needs a bit more aid from time to time. Well, I think the main reason and something that that needs to be worked on is is a question of trust having someone come in and and support your efforts at you know either responding or rebuilding that means a, a level of of access of visibility that countries might not be you know willing to entertain that might be they might be reluctant to to offer and and i think that that is one of the challenges to address, you need to to build trust, and you can't do that overnight. That that means to put in the work and to prove yourself to be a reliable partner. Now, close us out here. You've gone into this 
quite a bit at different points, but I want us to really focus now at the end in a in a food for thought sort of way. So to ensure that cybersecurity aid is provided in the most efficient way, you say that there are tensions and objectives that are plaguing the processes. And so there needs to be some sort of effort put into thinking about the processes to alleviate the myriad of objectives and tensions that the system faces today. Can you walk walk us through what some of those objectives and tensions look like? Yeah, yeah, of course. As I mentioned, you know, even as we're you know, we're talking about the efforts in the US, we're talking about the efforts in the EU, the shifts, they're, they're still very early stages. You know, in one case, we don't even have actual text to go through to to analyze and think about or, or to critique or to offer uh, suggestions. So I, I want you to take this with a grain of salt. But I think and what I outline in in my article is mainly three categories of questions that we should be thinking about and that I would like to see reflected in further documents that are talking about cybersecurity aid and assistance. So the first is delineating the scope of cyber assistance, right? So how can we ensure that these mechanisms will receive sufficient and lasting political support what do we mean when we talk about useful but flexible thresholds for providing assistance? And how do we avoid duplication of efforts across agencies, both when we're uh, talking about how you offer support, but also how you receive it? Then the second category is about transparency. So how much information should you be sharing with the, if you're the victim country, with whoever is offering support? What are some of the security requirements that arise when you're implementing a new process like this? And how can you ensure as the, you know, the government that is stepping, the country that is stepping in, that you have the adequate mechanisms to protect whatever information you're receiving from from the victim? And then finally, as you know, the issue of cybersecurity involves multiple stakeholders. what role do other actors have to play? And here we're talking about something we didn't really discuss, but the role of the private sector or regional organizations and how those efforts are going to align or not with country-to-country bilateral support. So those are just some of the things that you know, I would like to leave the audience with some of the questions that are still pending and that are going to, I think, really frame the conversation around processes and mechanisms for cybersecurity aid. That's Eugenia Lostery. Her article is titled, What Will Mechanisms for Cybersecurity Aid Look Like? I encourage you to read her article at lawfaremedia.org. Eugenia, thank you for joining us. Sarfin, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work as well at lawfaremedia.org. This podcast is edited by Jen Pachihal, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.